ultimately you want to be able to confidently say, when we do other experiments, this conclusion that we came to is gonna stay the same, mm -hmm. right? Because you don't wanna have to keep going back and testing over and over again these same assumptions. You want to be able to say, for the most part, if we don't change anything else, this is gonna stay the same and we can then fine tune that or mm -hmm. do more to increase conversions or increase retention or things like that. Hey, welcome to the UX and Growth Podcast. I'm Jeff, I'm a UX engineer at HubSpot. And I'm Matt, and I'm a growth engineer at HubSpot. And I'm Austin, I'm a UX designer at HubSpot. So today we're gonna talk about statistical significance, a really important concept. And the main reason that we wanna talk about it is because whenever you're conducting these big, high impact experiments, it's really important that you can walk away from it knowing that the data that you've collected and the results that you've gathered are actually reliable and that you set the experiment up in a way to get you the results that you actually want. So um, you want to be able to get confident data that you can actually place your bets on and predict the outcome. Before we talk about that, however, I wanna give a quick update on our audience. We, ha uh, we started this podcast, this marks our 10th episode, I believe. Ish. Or 10th-ish yeah, ten ish episode. Uh, the file I'm working on right now says 11. I know we didn't release our pilot episode, Yeah. which might be. So we're, we'll count, we'll, <laughs> we'll update, we'll write a blog post, a whole blog post about um, whether or not this is correct or incorrect. Why didn't we release our pilot? I thought it was pretty good. Well, we recorded it on Jeff's MacBook. Oh, oh, right. That's so we didn't the, have the nice microphones. <laughs> yeah, so. we didn't have any microphones. <laughs> it's like, this is let's a, do a podcast. Uh, it's the equivalent of just like turning on the recorder on your iPhone and just yeah. being like, let's go. Doesn't sound very good. Um, we should go back and listen to that. It was probably, Pro we were probably, probably very talented. Probably pretty bad. Yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> <laughs> so that's, that's actually a nice little insight into our mindset. Uh, back a couple months ago when we started this podcast, we really just wanted to... Uh, get together every week and mm -hmm. talk about stuff that was interesting to us and learn from each other and Unexpectedly we have managed to fall into a pretty sizable audience. Our, our audience has grown massively uh, With this podcast, so I kind of want to talk a little bit about um, All of the awesome people that are listening to this podcast and I want to thank you guys for your messages of encouragement for your dedicated listenership and for uh, spreading the word about this uh, this thing that we do every week that we enjoy so much. We've got domestically, we, we have like huge amounts of listeners all over the United States. Some of our biggest cities, of course, Boston. Yeah. We've got we've got like the home home team, home field advantage there. Uh, San Francisco, that's like everybody is obsessed with this stuff out there. Yeah. New York. Uh, and then randomly, Wadsworth, Ohio. <laughs> so, <laughs> all right. So, do you guys? So now we know that's a place. <laughs> yeah. I don't know what you guys are thinking, but that sounds like the next next tech hub of the United States, Wadsworth, Ohio. So, <laughs> start investing right now. We're gonna make a lot of money, everybody. <laughs> but beyond the United States, some of the top countries 
that listen to our podcast every week, Poland, India, Taiwan, United Kingdom, France, Spain, Denmark, Germany, and my favorite, Brazil. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, And then I also, I want to give a special shout out to Australia and more specifically, Jordan from Australia because he sent us the most ridiculous email uh, with, I could hear the Aussie accent coming out of this email, uh, thanking us for, for the the content that we are sharing in the podcast. So you guys are awesome. Uh, thank you for listening to us every week and sharing our content and for writing into us and supporting what we're doing. It really makes this just exponentially more rewarding than we expected it to yeah, be. Yeah, thank you so much. Mm-hmm. It means a lot. Absolutely. So a little bit more chest pounding before we get to our subjects. Uh-huh. Uh, there was a recent announcement from LinkedIn. Yes. Yes, so this is, we're doing a throwback episode today. <laughs> we're throwing it all the way back to episode number one. Yeah. And in our first episode, we talked about dark patterns on LinkedIn, which are basically intentionally deceptive user interfaces. And in that episode, I, uh, I took an unpopular stance, uh, and I basically challenged the, de- the, the uh, design community to present me with real evidence that actually proved that dark patterns were bad for business. Because what we were seeing is like, basically LinkedIn was creating a bunch of deceptive interfaces that were tricking people into emailing all of their friends and asking them to join LinkedIn without them even knowing it. Um, And then the design community was very upset about this because they were doing it through these deceptive interfaces and they were saying, oh, LinkedIn, they're, you know, they're gonna, lose all of their users and the you know LinkedIn is going to fail which was hilarious to me because they're the they're, they're the third largest social <laughs> yeah, network right. in the world um, <clears throat> of course MySpace you know so uh, like there was there was all of, all of this rage all around the internet with people talking about you know the evil things that were going to happen to LinkedIn and how you should never use dark patterns but despite all of that rage I had yet to see any actual conclusive evidence that really showed that LinkedIn's or that uh, the dark patterns that LinkedIn was using were actually bad right. or or for that matter that dark patterns in general yeah. were bad for business I imagine that stirred the pot a little bit yeah, yeah. So that was that was a that was a controversial stance to take, but I felt like somebody had to do it, and it was weird. Like I had a, a surprising amount of people agree with me, and then a couple people that like were like personally offended by uh, the I fact that go, I disagreed with them. I thought you were gonna go the other side and be like, yeah, they were like part of the dark pattern cult. Like they were <laughs> like not only agreed, but were like gung ho. Like that's what they teach. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, so so at the time of, of that episode, we didn't have any, like, r- really there was just no evidence in general to show that dark patterns were a bad move. We just had this whole thing where designers said, oh, they're bad, they're deceptive, and users don't like them, so you shouldn't use them. Right. And I think that's, a le- that's actually a legitimate argument to a degree, like, you know, the whole business ethics thing. That makes a lot of sense, but it's very, e- that's, it's very easy for businesses to dismiss that, just like LinkedIn did. Until now. Uh, it recently came out, Matt and I got uh, uh, some interesting emails over the weekend from a federal court in the United States uh, discussing a case called Perkins v. LinkedIn Corp. And they were giving us the opportunity to file a claim uh, within this case 
which was actually a class action lawsuit against LinkedIn for using the very dark patterns um, that we discussed in the podcast and that I discussed in the article that I wrote after it. And uh, LinkedIn has since been ordered to pay a sum of $13 million to its users. How much... How much does that equal out per user? That's about $10 a user. Oh, wow. It'll be $10 a claim. However... No more student loan debt. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Probably not. Thanks, LinkedIn. (laughs) I don't know how many users you invited. (laughs) (laughs) However, had the prosecution proven that the dark patterns that LinkedIn used caused a form of mental anguish, the number would have been much higher at about $750. So what we have here is basically like solid evidence that in a way, dark patterns actually are bad for business. So this is big because this is like the first time that we've really had like a number where you can say $13 million. That's how bad they are. So this is a really important step forward in the argument. 13 million being the low end. The low end. The low end of that. Yeah, if you're, I guess, the darkest of dark patterns, like Sith patterns, I guess I'll call them, where you're causing (laughs) (laughs) the mental anguish. Think about that. Like you do something, I don't know, what's an example? Like imagine if Ashley Madison, instead of getting hacked, as a viral strategy, they decided to email all your friends and be like, join Ashley Madison. Then everybody's like, "Uh, yo, you joined Ashley Madison. <laughs> that's that's kind of wrong, you know. And yeah. then you lose all your friends, and then like everyone else, of course, is affected by that because it's yeah. a business decision. Um, that well, might, how much do they owe you then? I, I've, I don't know. Hopefully I'm not I'm not going to speak on knowing anything about making money from or being involved <laughs> with Ashley Madison. So <laughs> anyway, like, I'm glad I don't know. I I think the most important part of this whole lawsuit. And this new development with the LinkedIn case is that it sets a new precedent right. where basically not only are users expressing that they hate dark patterns, but the United States justice system is as well. And they're saying, we're not going to put up with this. You can't do this. Right. So here we go. Just another moment where the wild, wild west days of the Internet are coming to an end. I'll go home and cry tonight. <laughs> um, but this is actually a really good thing. This means that we're going to have a better uh, web Design is being valued in a whole new way. Um, At the same time, I actually think that my original call to action for the design community still stands. Um, If we were to look at this from an all-encompassing perspective, probably what we would find is that LinkedIn still made a smart business decision by using the dark patterns. And that they could kind of just write this this $13 million lawsuit off as a cost of doing business. Because I would argue that LinkedIn likely made excessively more than $13 million by utilizing dark patterns, breaking the law, apparently, and acquiring new users than if they had not used dark patterns and acquired significantly less users. Right. They have a specific dollar amount that they can tie to every single user that they acquire. So I think that they probably still came out uh, ahead of the curve. That's just my guess. Yeah. But regardless, this whole this whole piece of this argument, this entire case, can still be very easily dismissed. Uh, So take a startup or a small to medium sized business, and you've got a, you know, somebody in the organization that is arguing that you should use a dark pattern in your user interface to upsell or to acquire more users or whatever. And then the designer says, well, 
first off, I'm a good designer and I know that you shouldn't do that. You shouldn't deceive your users. That's not ethical from a business standpoint. Right. And the guy in the startup says, well, you know, we're a startup, tough shit. Like sometimes you have to break the rules to get ahead. I've been in a startup before. They do that all the time. <laughs> Um, okay. The, the battle flag of startups, yeah. basically. So you can't you can't appeal to business ethics anymore. So then you can say, all right, well, there was this lawsuit where you know the United States justice system said, hey, you can't do this, and LinkedIn lost thirteen million dollars over it. And then the startup guy says, well, you know, we're not we're LinkedIn. not LinkedIn, <laughs> yeah. and nobody cares about what we do right now. So we're still gonna push forward with this. And I think that that again is where the dark pattern argument breaks down. And that is why we have to create a consistently replicable uh, way to prove that the negative business implications of using dark patterns don't exist in business ethics, don't exist now in the law, but rather they exist in the dark pattern itself. You can prove, we need to find a way to prove that a, there is a diminishing return that is inherently tied to a dark pattern no matter where you put it, no matter the size of the organization, no matter the unique audience, no matter the product, there is always going to be a negative impact that results from a dark pattern. I bet it's one of those things that it's a short game versus long game yeah. problem. So you get people who start okaying dark patterns and it works for a while mm -hmm. and you grow massively. But then these dark patterns and this thought process around the dark pattern, which is basically, you know, put all morals aside and put um, the user's feelings aside mm -hmm. and win. Yeah. As that starts to build on top of itself, then you get companies that, well, I guess there's only two ways. You can either go Bank of America route, which is like, they're too big to fail. Mm -hmm. Or you go... I can't think of an example right now, but uh, you go down, you just, you become so, you leave such a bad taste in yeah. all of your users' mouths from becoming so big and so bad at everything that you do that you start, and your strategy becomes a dark pattern. I'm thinking like Comcast yeah, is a I great example. Yeah, I was gonna example. say Comcast. Comcast too. is a great example because they have gotten so, I mean, they're trying, but um, they have gotten- Are they though? <laughs> Make, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Matt broke the silence for that one. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It's uh, they the territory strategy and the things where they are making money because it's like real estate for them. You know, if we don't compete with you and you don't compete with me, then we can jack our rates up as high as we want, and this just goes infinitely until mm. people stop paying us. But you know, how much do people value internet? And apparently, they value it at about one hundred and fifty dollars a month. So, yeah. I it sounds like dark patterns in a general sense can be much larger than just mm -hmm. the you know the web interface kind it's it's almost a way of thinking you know yeah um and it's just being translated into an interface right yeah so it, it becomes part of your brand it's about being yeah. a sociopath yeah <laughs> what did you guys oh sorry <laughs> so statistical significance yeah so yeah. anyway let's move on before yeah. it gets like it's super dark uh, uh -huh. on this podcast yeah. So the, the, main, the main thing we want to talk about today is statistical significance. Yep. So first and foremost, uh, I think part of why statistical significance is so important for everyone to know in the experiment community in general, not just web experiments, it's an important concept everywhere, is that, as Austin said, you want to be confident in the bet that you're making on the results of your experiment. Right. Unfortunately, not 
everyone really knows what statistical significance is because it's kind of complicated, right? And there's a lot of um, misinterpretations of what it really means, and I'm completely guilty of this too. When I first started as a growth engineer here, like I didn't really know what it meant. And as a result, I ran failed experiments because I was misinterpreting what significance actually meant. Um, So we want to clear the air on what it is, what it is not, uh, give you guys some insight into the formula for it, and then teach you guys a little bit about how you can integrate statistical significance into your experimentation process so that you're setting yourself up for success with the experiments that you design. Um, So what is not statistical significance? Statistical significance does not say that given the results of an experiment, you are 95% confident that some branch is going to beat the control. It does not say that. That is the that is the misconception that right. people have. So it doesn't it doesn't mean that A variation is going yes. to beat B variation because of your experiment. Exactly. Results. And a great example of this is you can easily hit statistical significance for an experiment once it has 20 visitors or right. 20 samples. If the first 10 in the control um, don't convert, period, and then two or three people in the variation do convert, well, you just hit statistical significance, but you are definitely not 95% sure that that variation is going to continue to beat the control. What you are sure of is given that set 20, uh, the sample size of those set 20 users, that that was probably not due to random chance, which is what the actual definition of statistical significance is. Right, you can prove that Mm -hmm. the results that you get are not due to random chance, which is, I guess, another way of saying you disprove the null hypothesis. If you're uh-huh. any any familiar with uh, this concept of scientific method, null hypothesis being that what you get is completely random. It's just due to randomness that you didn't, you know, you didn't measure anything. You don't know what the variables are. Um, it's just a general like doesn't count doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's ca- true for all experiments right from the start. Right, exactly. And you could do that with 20 users. Yep. You, you can hit the, the definition of statistical significance with 20 users. The way in which people mean to use statistical significance is to paint an accurate picture of the larger population that they're sampling from. So for example, if you are sampling from all business owners in the United States, like small business owners, millions and millions of them, you're not gonna sample 20 business owners and really be able to say that those 20 business owners, I don't represent know. Represent like, the entire. Right, exactly. So you know, you, you want to build a sample size and run your experiments with a sample size that once you do that, you can sample any number, not any number, any group of these business owners in that same sample size. Let's say you do it with a thousand people, and that's statistical significant, st- statistically significant. We're going to do that a lot. Yeah, we're going to say. <laughs> sorry, it's like it's a hard word to say. Um, but if you take those thousand people, and you you just clear the bucket, and you go, I, I need to get another thousand people, and you grab just another random thousand people out of that business owner demographic, you should be able to get the same results or very similar results. Mm-hmm. And that's the point: is you're representing. Um, a whole population using a small sample. Um, so 20 users is great, and you're statistically significant for that group, for the actual context, mm-hmm. but it's not really what you're trying to do because you want to be confident going forward. You can't build on your experiments if you're 
results don't actually reflect the next thousand users, the next two thousand users that you're going to be sampling. Mm -hmm. So in a sense, you're saying that you have to look at statistical significance in the context of the broader picture, exactly. where it is not a per statistical significance in the experiment that you gave would not necessarily be a perfect proof that you could represent the entire mm -hmm. population, but rather it would be an indicator as a cog in the entire system of the ex the bigger experiment that you set up. So right. you wouldn't be able to say, hey, I reached statistical significance with 20 people and statistical significance means that this can be applied to the entire group. You instead have to look at what's the amount of people that I need to test with in order to represent the entire group. Right. And then I need to reach statistical significance with them. Exactly, yep. yeah. Ultimately, you want to be able to confidently say, when we do other experiments, this conclusion that we came to is gonna stay the same, mm -hmm. right? Because you don't wanna have to keep going back and testing over and over again these same assumptions. You want to be able to say, for the most part, if we don't change anything else, this is gonna stay the same and we can then fine tune that or mm -hmm. do more to increase conversions or increase retention or things like that. Let's put a number to it, um, sure. just real quick, because you can predict this kind of thing. Right. You can say that if I have two branches in my experiment and I want to detect a plus one percentage increase in CVR, conversion rate that is, and my average conversion rate for my control is 20%, we can predict that we actually need 17,740 unique samples to detect that increase. Yeah, and, the 1% increase. Yeah, and that means that if you check in to see if your results are statistically significant before you have that exact number of users. 17,000. Yes, that right. means you can't even consider it because you're running into that same issue that we had before where you're gonna hit significance at 20 users, maybe 100 users, maybe 1,000, but it's not gonna be represent, uh, representative of the general population. Right. So it's just a complete wash. Yeah, exactly. Um, you wanna talk a little bit about what actually goes into this? Like what what types of things do you have to work with when you're mm -hmm. when you're trying to build um, a check for statistical significance? Mm -hmm. um, so I think if you're gonna try and build a check for statistical significance, you I think the first thing is you just need to know what the components are of it. Right. Um, okay. So let's let's talk about that a little bit. Um, <clears throat> the uh, the the key terms to know is you need to know confidence threshold, you need to know null hypothesis, and okay. you need to know p-value. Okay, so confidence threshold, mm -hmm. What what is that? Confidence <laughs> threshold, okay, so, so confidence threshold is just a range that you define. Um, the general uh, consensus is 95%, which is saying that we need to be 95% sure that the null hypothesis is not true for this experiment that we're running, that okay. we've disproved it. Right. So so if you're, yeah, so 95% is a number that is standardized, you would say. So if you come into this confidence threshold, uh -huh. or are there a couple of different numbers that get used? Uh, it's, it's the number that I've generally heard from people and from searching around the internet, it seems to be what people are using. And I think that that's important because you want to be confident in the bet that you're making because if we're running experiments in an iterative process, right. like we want to be damn sure that we're not making a bad call and then we're gonna run future experiments on some learning that we had off of right. these bad results. Exactly. So I guess you could say that on the, the opposite side of that, mm -hmm. then you have a, like an error margin mm -hmm. of 5%, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So uh, just to kind of break the fourth wall here, I'm looking at a picture of the 
the formula like right now. So I'm asking Matt a bunch of questions, but I know all the answers already. And um, <laughs> the, the error margin is a big piece of this formula. So the error margin, when you know your confidence threshold, you then need to punch into the formula. How much wiggle room are we allowed to have with our, I guess, confidence, you know, knowing for sure how how likely we're allowing it to be random. If you run this experiment a bunch of times in a row, that error margin should represent the percentage of a chance that your experiment may not show those results. Um, nothing is ever absolute. It's really hard. You're, like, you're going to be guessing. And 5% of the time that it doesn't work, but 95% of the time that is representative, I think is a good bet. So 95% um, being your confidence threshold. Um, we already know the null hypothesis, we just covered that. Um, and then there was p-value. So explain to me what p-value is, Matt. So p-value is essentially, it's an estimation of the percentage chance that the results of an experiment do not disprove the, the null hypothesis, is essentially what that is. And error margin works into that equation as well. Um, and for those math geeks out there who are interested, p-value is really just um, the interval of the bell curve for standard deviation for when you calculate the difference between uh, your control group for the con the conversion rate and your variant group, gotcha. and it's those uh, outer bounds of of the bell curve specifically. Gotcha. Yeah. So when you punch it into the equation, mm -hmm. and um, I'm sure that 99% of you, my error margin is 1% on this guess, is that <laughs> you're not going to be dealing with these numbers directly. You're probably going to have a calculator of some sort. Mm -hmm. You can just Google statistical significance calculator, and they will give you the confidence that you want usually something like 95, 98, 99%. Then um, they'll ask, um, what percentage change do you want to see? Mm -hmm. Which is one. Um, and oftentimes they'll ask you for your, your sample size or an amount of time or some other things that punch in. And of course, like any equation, you could just flip the variables around to solve for different parts of it. So. Um, the p-value specifically in almost every calculator that you'll ever use is going to be 0 0.5 and it just stays that way. Like when you move that number bigger or smaller, what you're taking into account is called prior, which it gets super complicated. It's like, hey, we already kind of know what group's gonna win. And then it, cr it decreases the number of um, samples that you need. Like the sample size gets smaller because you're like, well, we already know B's gonna win. And that's, that's something that is, very dependent on your knowledge. Like you kind of, you're, I think the safest bet is to stick with 0 0.5 for that number. Let the calculator do its thing, take your word for it, you know, or just keep increasing sample size because I don't know if you have all the time in the world, but that also helps. You, if you sample everyone in your population, then you will be right 100% of the time, <laughs> <laughs> which is unrealistic. Um, and then there's, there's only one other piece that you're, again, is kind of behind the scenes. And this gets calculated, um, the calculator knows this, you, you may not, unless you're doing it by hand, it's called z-score. Z-score is when you give the confidence threshold, you say, I wanna be 95% confident, those numbers, 95, 98, 99, 97, any of those, they map to um, a standardized coefficient. They're just the same no matter what. 95 happens to map to this number 1.96, and then you just punch that in and it's good to go. So you won't have to deal with that. Um, and that's really it. It's just, uh, it's pretty short. It's Z, P, E, and then your output is sample size for the basic one. 
Um, not a lot of variables there. For all of you that are still with us, thank you. You, you are <laughs> true fans. Um, but I think that it's important to know the components of statistical significance and that you know its true definition so that you avoid, I guess, the missteps that I personally took and that many other people out there are taking. It really day. helps, too, to be able to check when you're using a calculator mm -hmm. that doesn't do it right. Mm -hmm. If it's missing part of the, the some of the pieces, you can be like, well, I already know the formula. Right. You know, even if you're not 100% sure what it what it's supposed to be, you get a good sense of like, are you guys just like, are you bullshitting me right now and just yeah. getting click traffic? So um, that's something to think about. Um, I guess we could uh, we could run through maybe an example experiment. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a good place to start because you should integrate statistical significance into two parts of your experimentation process. The first being when you actually write out your hypothesis for what's achievable, um, and that of course affects how you design your experiment. Right. And the second is when you're actually checking in on the results of your experiment, which we'll talk about a little bit uh, later. So. Let's go through an example experiment here. Um, I think a common experiment whenever we do this is let's just try and figure out the optimal angle for which to market our products. Right. Right. So we have this homepage that just says we have this thing that does foo. Right. And it says sign up and we have a 20% conversion rate. And, <laughs> and we're marketing to all bases out there. <laughs> There's more, but I, I don't know. I try not to write code with foo and bazin. It, it. It's too much mental effort to come up with actual example <laughs> products for this kind of thing. Um, so what we would do is we would set our objective. We're trying to learn the optimal angle to market our product. Um, and then we need to write out our hypothesis. But before we can write out our hypothesis, we have to know our historical um, numbers. We have to know how much traffic volume daily are we getting. Uh, we need to know what is our average conversion rate for this page. Um, and once we know those things, we can flip the equation of statistical significance and we can say, if we want this experiment to run for five days, given that we have 100 unique users per day um, and we're converting historically at 20%, that means that the minimum observable increase in conversion rate that I can hit is plus 9%. Wow. Okay, so you need, if you get anything less than 9%, mm -hmm. you can't be sure that You can't look at it. Let, let me uh, add on to that, though. Uh, that's given that we have a four branch experiment. Okay. For, for this specific experiment um, that I'm putting together, we wanna to test four different angles, or three different angles really, in a control for marketing our products. Gotcha. So given those variables in the equation for statistical significance, if we don't hit a plus nine percentage increase in CVR for any of our branches, then it proves nothing. Right, we can't be sure that it's not random fluctuation. Exactly, exactly. So now that we know that, um, we're able to set, we're actually able to um, design those variations so that they are different enough from the control that they will elicit a response um, that aligns with a plus nine percentage increase. Gotcha. Right? right. We don't want to just like change some micro copy on there so it like says something a little bit differently because that's going to move the needle very little. We want to we want to really make a big change here. So maybe we'll change the background so it has like a photo of uh, maybe a group of people and we have, we go yeah. for like social validation center messaging. We say, join the like million users who are using this product. Yeah, it's like, you know? Yeah, big ones. Like that would be a big one where you, you go the, like the social angle where it's all people and mm -hmm. all talking. And then maybe you'll go like the feature version where it yeah. just talks about features. And like th those are huge. Your pages are gonna look completely different yeah. from each other. Or maybe you go the direction where you're talking specifically to this uh, problem that a lot of people have. And you're not even really right. talking a whole the, lot about your problem. You're just like, doesn't, doesn't this thing suck? You yeah. know, and you just talk about that. Um, so the key here is that all these um, 
different ways that you're approaching to actually market your product are very different and can elicit that plus nine percentage increase uh, response. And that's a very different approach to setting your hypothesis and just putting out a random number because you think you can achieve it. Right, exactly. Because if you do that, you might run into the problem where, well, that number is actually unachievable. If you put down, if we put down a hypothesis for plus 2% or plus 3% here, we would have to run this experiment for weeks, even months in order to hit that. So right. we're already setting ourselves up for failure. Yeah. So knowing that minimum um, observable increase in CBR upfront is very helpful for when we actually design the experiment. It's kind of nice to know that with the small amount of traffic, you have to shoot for big numbers mm -hmm. because from a startup perspective, it kind of keeps you in line with what you should probably yeah, be doing in the first so place. True. You should not be pre-optimizing if you only have 100 people coming to your site a month, you know? Like you should be you should be figuring out, well, your product one, and then two, figuring out your audience and those things move the needle a lot. Once you nail it, you nail it and those numbers go high and then you get a lot more traffic. Mm -hmm. And then you can start optimizing your flow. That's why there are a lot of websites, especially uh, businesses that are up and coming, who they get a lot of publicity and they get a lot of traffic and you use their site and you're like, well, it does this, but like this could be a whole lot better, but it still does what I want. And like that is a great position to be in because it means that people can still achieve what they want and you have a lot of room mm -hmm. to grow and optimize. Yep, and it totally answers that question of, I wanna run experiments, but I don't have a whole lot of traffic volume. You right. can run experiments, they just have to be very high level, big experiments, they have to be radical departures. And then as you scale, once you as you're growing your channels and you're increasing your conversion rates, you have more users coming in, you can start to do those micro uh, iterations where you're testing for the perfect shade of blue and perfect micro copy right. and that kind of thing. Right. Should the dog be pointing to the left or the right, towards mm -hmm. the button or away from it? <laughs> you're, you're not going to move. It's the always towards the button. It's always towards. Always point the dog towards the button. <laughs> we can't get away with that kind Dark of thing. Dark patterns are good for you. <laughs> <laughs> And other things Austin says. <laughs> so uh, that's how we would set up an experiment with significance in mind. Now, the next part of this is when we're analyzing the experiment. We alluded to this a little bit earlier. Um, there's this uh, concept out there where if you constantly check in on the results of an experiment to see if they're significant, you're increasing the likelihood that you're going to make an early call and that you're actually gonna make a bad decision. Right. So in a, in a sense, the more that you check in before you hit the minimum number of traffic volume that you need for an experiment to be significant, your confidence threshold is going from 95% to 90% to 80% and so forth. Right. You're just reducing that confidence. Um, and the reason for that is because of what we talked about earlier, the definition of statistical significance does not say that you're 95% sure that an experiment will be successful. It's 95% sure that the results are not due to randomness given the set sample size that you have. Um, and so what that means is we need to calculate exactly how many users we need in order to hit, to uh, detect that 9% increase in conversion rate. So we can do that if we have the four branches here, we have a 20% historical conversion rate and we have, and we wanna detect a plus 9% increase we can't check in on this experiment until we have over 500 exposures, period. Right. Which is five days given that we have 100 visitors yeah. per day. So basically, it's run it for a week, put it away. Mm -hmm. Don't look at it. Don't you dare look at it. Yep. Don't look at it. And then seriously, don't look on at it. Friday afternoon, you can peek at it, uh -huh. but probably wait till Saturday. Uh -huh. And then, assuming you started on Monday, if you started on Thursday, don't look at it. And then then you can be pretty sure that what you're looking at is much closer. It might not be perfect, by the way, because sometimes 
and I've done this too. I've run an experiment for five days and it actually didn't expose as much as I thought. For some reason, it wasn't pooling people correctly or whatnot. That's a reason why you should check in on it. Every yeah, day. Like okay. You should still check in on your experiment every day to make sure the events are coming right. in as expected and but nothing's broken. But don't have feelings for it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> really, that's what it is. If uh-huh. you start an experiment and you go, I need this experiment to work, you already failed because yeah. you're gonna be biased. So, yeah. you know, it's, yeah, make sure it works, be responsible, be a responsible parent, but don't push them in the direction that you want them to go. Let it happen on its own. Are there any like fail safes that you can put into place, maybe from a process perspective or even from a technical perspective to kind of make sure that you don't operate your, you know, when you're collecting your results that you don't operate under any form of bias? Like I know that you can, you know, whenever you go into one of these experiments, you want to write your assumptions out. That's an important part of the mm-hmm. scientific method. Right. Matt, you've discussed a placebo experiment before, which yeah. I think is very interesting. Are there any are there any specific ways that you guys would recommend, you know, the the person in charge of the experiment, or maybe even the person in charge of the person doing yep. the experiment, they can like things they can put into place. So I think that that's more of a cultural thing, and like let's be honest, if you're hired to run experiments, you have an incentive to run experiments that succeed. Right. right. So it becomes a problem in which you are going to inherently be biased about the results of an experiment. Yeah. You're going to try and skew the data set looks if you're better than if it you're is. punished for failure on mm-hmm. a small number of experiments. I think that that can be a deterrent too. That's, if you're afraid of failing, then it's not you're not. And also that experimentation culture is not working correctly yeah. because a lot of your experiments are going to be just not good. Like even if you run them correctly, like you're just going to be wrong, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's the, but yeah. what needs to happen is that it's okay to fail. And I think the way that you do that is rather than trying to run successful experiments, you run experiments for the sole purpose of learning something. Right. And whether it succeeds or it fails, you're gonna learn something from that experiment right. about your audience. Yeah. If you have a team, well, being completely visible mm-hmm. with your experiments, writing everything down, making putting all of the documentation in a place where everybody can access it, gives you a lot of extra eyes. So if you think you didn't learn something, someone else may have and they can jump in. So that way you're always pulling value from every single experiment that you're running. Also, having a team work on these experiments um, makes it easier for you to do that brainstorming step and you know, kind of like second guess some things that maybe you've already learned something and you're, you didn't realize it or um, you know, you're running an experiment that might fail because you're running it against people. You're making assumptions that are too broad. You know, having other people check you and having other people check after the fact is gigantic. And if you're all in the same boat together, then it's it's not that big of a deal. You know, if it's like a whole team of people working together to succeed versus one person being responsible for their own experiments and succeeding or not succeeding, you're gonna wow. have a much more healthy relationship. Like here at HubSpot, we're all in the same boat together now. There is a problem if our, all of our experiments fail and our product tanks, and then you know none of us have jobs after yeah. that. Like that's a normal business thing to happen. But the fact that we're all together doing this, all shooting for the same thing and working together on stuff, and not particularly um, siloed, it helps us be okay with failure, but move at a pace that our successes and learnings outpace the occasional. A failure or botched experiment or anything like that. We basically create padding. Yeah. You know, and it's a cultural thing. So you basically have to have leadership mm-hmm. that is comfortable with failure. 
And moment. if you don't have that, you just need people double checking. Mm -hmm. You know? Yeah. Because that can be kind of hard to. Yeah, you can introduce. succeed. Depends where the leadership is, right? Yeah. Low level leadership, yes. High level leadership, they're probably not even exposed to a lot of that right, stuff. Right, right, so right. So it's okay if they don't like it. Yeah. But as long as, you know, you have people who are really good at setting up a quarterly pitch deck that makes them look amazing, you know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> a, are there any certain qualities that you see in teams or maybe even more specifically in individuals that cause certain people to for some reason have more successful experiments than others or do you notice that it's it's yeah, just a Albert quantitative Einstein thing helps. yeah yeah <laughs> yeah but what are the qualities you know because whenever you take one of these teams so that you've got a team of 10 people that are running experiments you're going to be able to find people on those teams that for some reason have a lot of winners right right what makes that person is it that is it just purely quantitative they just this person ran 100 experiments and the person next to them ran 75 or do you see specific qualities in these people like what helps an individual to succeed in running these types of experiments i think creativity definitely helps and by creativity i don't just mean coming up with great experiments to run i mean in interpreting data because mm -hmm. if you collect a bunch of quantitative data points on an experiment or just existing data points on a page and you see that for this specific thing there's a drop off you might look at that and be like, huh, that's weird. We should work on that. Or you could look at that and think, oh, that's probably because we didn't prime the user before they got to that step. Why don't we test that? And if you can have that insight into the reasoning behind why there's that drop off in the quantitative data and really see what the UX problem is, then you're more likely to design a successful experiment to fix it. Yeah. But that's a very challenging thing to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think. Uh having like objectivity mm -hmm. as well is a quality where, and it comes down to like the bias, like being able to step yourself outside of the whole thing and look at every angle, I guess in a way that is kind of creativity too, you know, where it's problem solving for your problem solving. You know, if you need to diagnose, <laughs> problem solving squared, if you need to diagnose something that made your experiment turn out the way that you, you didn't expect, you're able to analyze that in a way that's just as good as um, analyzing your product. You know, you, you can analyze your own process and you can find ways to improve because you can always improve your, your experimentation process. You, you know, if you forget to um, track every part of a funnel, every step, things that you don't even think mattered, and then you realize that your experiment totally failed because people were dropping off way farther up in the funnel, you know, you won't know that if you don't track it. And then next time around, you do track it. And then you just learn in no time. You fix all these other issues. You fix things that you didn't like. Suddenly, your experiments will just be you'll you'll be worried about a lot less stuff. Or at mm -hmm. least that's what I assume is it's it's a learning process, being open minded and and um, being able to pay attention. Mm -hmm. That's all the time we have. <laughs> Thank you for sticking around through the part about math. That, that was, I saw Austin take his glasses off and like rub his face. Like how we do that. Um, but hopefully you learned a lot. Please email us if you have any questions or you want to know more. We are happy to talk about this. We're probably going to write more about this too. So you're going to see more about statistical significance and uh, running smart experiments in the future. Um, our address is hello at uxandgrowth.com. Please hit us up. Thank you so much. Have a great rest of your day.